Good evening. This is Marcia Pendleton. I am your host and welcome to Backstage Stories on listener-supported WBAI New York. This evening, we have Marcus Gardley. He is an acclaimed poet, playwright, and screenwriter. And he has a number of accolades, and I'm going to share a few with you. He is an Obie Award winner. He was named the Literary Laureate of San Francisco. He was the recipient of the Doris Duke Artist Award and the 2015 Glickman Award. He was a finalist for the 2015 Kennedy Prize. And like I said before, he is an Obie Award winner, which he won in 2019 for a marvelous play called The House That Will Not Stand. Other plays include X or The Nation versus Betty Shabazz. Black Odyssey, The Gospel of Loving Kindness, Every Tongue Confess, On the Levee, and The Road Weeps, and The Well Runs Dry. And he has also made his mark in television and film. I can mention those things at this point. I can mention them. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And I'm so excited about them because we can talk about the fact that he is doing the adaptation of the Color Purple musical on film. And that's going to be in theaters in 2023. And his Marvin Gaye biopic was just picked up by Warner Brothers and Alan Hughes of the Hughes Brothers uh, is attached to direct. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I'm glad that you're here. Um, We're going to be uh, speaking tonight about a play that you have written, and it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a concert reading of it. It's called A Wolf in Shakespeare's Snakeskin Shoes or The Gospel of Tartuffe, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit. And I want to cover some things in your background, like where you're from, and maybe some of the seminal moments on your way to becoming an artist, and how that background impacted your growth or your interest in the arts. I love this question. Thank you. Um, So I'm born and raised in Oakland, California. Uh, my father's a pastor, my mother's a nurse, and I grew up in a um, very large family. My dad has 10 sisters, four brothers, and then my mother was raised with her cousins, and so it's about seven to about nine of them. And very, very uh, close family, uh, grew up in the church, and I had a really, really great childhood. Um, most people, I think when they pres- when they think of Oakland, they think of violence, um, or they think of gangs or drugs. But uh, I had to actually the opposite upbringing. Um, I grew up in a very rich African American community where everybody looked out for each other on the street that I grew up in. Everybody loved on each other. Everybody made each other food. We told stories, and um, and it's why I'm a playwright. It's why I'm a writer because I grew up in, in an environment um, where young people were told that uh, our job was to continue our legacy. 
uh, we were told that our job um, was to love each other and remind each other of uh, of our history. And so that's what I dedicated my life to do. My father, when I was growing up, my father said, you know, you, you're called to the, the ministry. He told my, me and my brother the same thing. And both of all my siblings are writers. So my brother's a poet and my sister writes novels and my younger sister's an illustrator. So we're all writers of some sort. But he told me, I never forget when I was young, he said, you're called to the ministry. And I knew I didn't want to do that. I knew that um, I always felt in my spirit that I was meant to write. And so I was really conflicted with that. Um, and it was so interesting. The first time he saw one of my plays after the play was over, he said, see, I told you I was right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was going to say that it is so present in your work. Thank you. Thank you. It is so present in your work, especially this this last piece that I had the privilege of, of reading. Thank you. And, and just some of the titles that I shared with people at the top of the show, but your dad was right. He was right. He was absolutely <laughs> correct. He was right. And, and, and it shocked me because then I looked back and I thought, oh my God, he is right. And, um, and, and, and I love what I do. Um, also part of that journey was, you know, sort of trying to find my way. I didn't know anybody who was a playwright. I didn't know that that was a thing. I sort of have to find my own way. And I never forget two important things happened to me growing up. One, the day I was born, my father's grandmother died. Her name was um, Lucy. Mm-hmm. And so because I was born literally the day that she passed on, everybody felt like I was her re- reincarnated, that I had her spirit. And so that gave me the um, this beautiful gift where the women in my family, because they missed her, they sort of gravitated toward me and allowed me to be in their company growing up as a young boy. So they were in the kitchen telling stories, laughing, telling jokes, singing to each other. I got to sit amongst them because they missed her and all of that beautiful language that these African-American women were sharing with each other. It just got into my body. And that's why I saw how they loved on each other and how they loved the the men in their lives. And I said, I want to share this with the world. So that was one huge thing that had an impact on me. And then Mm -hmm. secondly, growing up, me and my brother used to go to libraries and spend a lot of time in the library. And we we made a bet with each other that who could read all the books in the YA section faster. And he um, he beat me to it. But I never forget, I got my hand on the color purple and I kept rereading it because it had such a powerful impact on me. And then after I got through all the books, I, I was really upset. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, there are not enough books about us. Where are the books about us? Uh, and he said, you have to write them. You have to tell those stories that you don't see. And that's the minute I became a writer, that very minute. I started to dedicate my life to writing. So those are the two really powerful moments that had an impact on me. I ended up going to um, San Francisco State, studying theater, and then to Yale School of Drama, where I studied playwriting. And I've been doing it ever since. It is wonderful to work at one's craft, period. Yes. Uh, period. Um Talk a little bit more about your education and training, a theater major, and then going to the Yale School of Drama. And it's, I guess it's David Geffen who gave a whole lot of money. So (laughs) if you're interested in going to the Yale School of Drama, folk, 
You don't have to pay. That's right. It's a free ride. <laughs> it's a free ride, courtesy of David. That's Geffen. right. It wasn't free when I was there. Let me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It wasn't free with most of the people that I know who went to Yale, and it was just very recently, even some very recent grads okay. who have big bills uh, to pay. Right. Uh, but talk about uh, your education in. Uh, in San Francisco, did you say San Francisco State? That's correct. And then uh, that journey to Yale School of Drama. Absolutely, thank you. So, so San Francisco State was great because you know I didn't go far away from home. Being from Oakland, right? It was just across the bridge. Um, and so I studied. I was a double major in African American Studies and um, Theater. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I again struggled with can I make a career as a theater artist? You know, I knew. Um, you know, that I want to be able to buy my my parents a home one day. There were things that I saw I wanted to have a career where I was going to, you know, make a significant amount of money. And I didn't think that I could do that as a theater artist or as a writer. Um, but my passion was always plays. And I, I did my first, very first play was at San Francisco State. Um, and that minute I saw those actors speak those words and move around the stage um, I just, I just knew I had to do this. This is what I was called to do. Um, and so my professor at the time, Roy Conboy was saying to me, you know, you should apply to these various schools because you have real talent. And I never forget. I, I, I started rewriting all my plays and I was sending them to him to read and give critiques and, and he would read it and he's, and he would just give it back to me without complimenting the work. And, uh, and I got very frustrated and I said, is it, I'm never going to be good enough. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, well, you've never said there's anything good about the work. And he says, in your life, there's going to always be people to tell you if the work is good or not, or it's bad or not. You need to know if it's good or bad enough. He says, because otherwise you're going to allow the people's feedback to affect what you're doing. You have to believe in yourself. And I never forget, I sat down and I wrote this draft of this play because it's what I wanted to say. And that's the draft I turned into the Yale School of Drama. And I got in and I got into several other schools too, but that was the school I really wanted to go to. And my first day at Yale was my first time in the East Coast. It was the first time I ever took a plane. It was a lot of first <laughs> for me, you know, and I definitely was a, a, felt like a fish out of water. Um, but I had, I knew that my family supported this decision. They had my back and I wanted to make them proud. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't afford, I came from a, um, low income family. Uh, so I had to usher, I had to, um, wash dishes. I had to do part-time jobs, you know, to tell pay for my tuition. Um, and I just really worked. I had a really actually great experience at Yale. Um, I wrote three of the plays that, um, people still produce to this day. Which ones and, are they? Uh, uh, one of the main ones is Jesus Moon Walks in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then another play that had a national tour called, uh, I think you read this one earlier, it was called The Roll Weeps, The Roll Runs Dry. Mm-hmm. It's about African-American and Native American uh, tribe. And um, and then the other play I wrote um, is called um, Like Some Falling in the Mouth, which is starred Peter Macon, one of my favorite actors. Okay. Um, so I had a, a great time doing that. And then, you know, I graduate it um, as the what they would call the Mar- student marshal, but essentially the valedictorian, uh, which was... Uh, a great moment for me, my parents, you know, coming for the first, also their first time in the East Coast, coming to the school and seeing their son rock across the stage and represent the university was pretty um, momentous occasion for all of them. Because I know they were worried about me going to the East Coast. My first day of school was 9-11. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a, quite a, a momentous uh, time in my life, but I had a great time at the school. I love the fact that you talked about the fact that you were able to sit among these these women and hear 
their words and hear their phrases. Yes. What are some of the things that you remember hearing them say? What stood out? What auntie said what to whom? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this question. You know, one of the things that I won't forget is how they talked about my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Because my great grandfather uh, Oscar, uh, who never left New Orleans, he unfortunately tried to kill my great grandmother because she caught her in bed with another man. He shot the man in cold blood and then tried to unfortunately take her life. She fled, and that's how my family lived in California. But his the family was split about how they felt about him because he was always writing her these love letters, begging her forgiveness and begging her to come back to him. And so I, I, I remember them arguing about he's no good. He would never be any good. Why does he keep coming back here? And, um, and I remember my grandmother specifically saying, I will always love him, but uh, I, I can never forget, you know, he tried to take my life. And like these women sort of like really rallying behind her uh, around that. I remember that so distinctly. I also remember how they used to, when they there was somebody they didn't like, they would mimic them mm-hmm. and like have their voice quality down to the T. How do black women do that? It was just literally like <laughs> perfect, perfect pitch, everything. But I also remember the songs they used to sing when someone would pass away and they would, you know, they had a way of grieving that was quite profound where they would just sing to each other. And uh, and if you're, your spirit's not moved from that, you can't be moved. Um, they just really, really loved on each other and... You know, I never forget my great grandmother lived to 104. Mm-hmm. And uh, the greatest moment of my life is before she passed, she said that she had, she was essentially the grill and she handed that, that task down to me. And it's the greatest moment of my life. 104. 104, Callie Sterling. What kind of stories did Callie tell you? <laughs> Callie Sterling, they're all the plays. Right. All the stories okay. are in all the plays. Yeah. All okay. the plays are her stories. So after hearing that, the next time I see a play of yours or read a play of yours, I will ask Callie. Yes, please. To guide me. (laughs) Yes, please. To show me who she is. Yes. And how she's represented in your work. She'll be sitting right next to you. Okay. I'm ready. I'm (laughs) ready. I'm absolutely ready. I want to talk a little about your journey in becoming a poet, and then we'll talk about the playwright, and then we'll talk about the screenwriter. And before you do that, I want to have a little fangirl moment. Oh, please. <laughs> fangirl moment. When I was watching The Shy, yes. and I saw your name come up in the credits, and I probably scared my neighbors to death <laughs> because I just screamed. I was just like, Oh my God, that's Marcus. (laughs) That was just a thrill. It's just a thrill. It was just a thrill. And The Shy is is still one of my favorite programs. And one of the actors from The Shy is now in making his Broadway debut, Luke James. That's correct. His Broadway debut in Thoughts of a Colored Man. And y'all need to go see him. Absolutely. Please. And he sings in that. If y'all didn't know, you will know after seeing this show. But anyway, let's get back to Marcus becoming a a poet. Thank you for this question. You know, the the poetry, um, I don't know where it came from. You know, I've never, I don't remember not writing poems. Some of my first um, memories are me writing poems. I never forget in Miss Wilhite's third grade class, 
she had us all write these short stories and even that ended up being a poem. That's the first thing I can remember writing and, and her having me read it in front of the class. Um, so it just came so natural to, naturally to me. I think growing up in the church and, you know, listening to my father's sermons, um, again, that beautiful music that the aunts and grandmothers and my mother sung, having all of that black rhythm and, and, and power uh, infused in me, uh, just the poetry just came out of that. I also feel like African-American people, poetry is our na- is our natural tongue. It's when we're upset, when we're happy, when we're excited, you know, that it just comes all naturally to. So I'm just really recording. I always say my job is my number one job as a writer is to listen and, and put down what I hear. Um, and so uh, that poetry comes out of that. And then the playwriting, when I first took my um, I, I start, I actually took a fiction class first before I took a playwriting class again, because I didn't know anything about theater. I didn't, I didn't see my first play until I was in college. But when I took a, a fiction class, my, my fiction teacher said, these are not, these are not poems. These are plays. Oh. Said, you're writing, you're, you're writing plays. And I said, no, these are, these are poems. I'm a poet. And she said, you wrote stage directions. <laughs> stage directions here. And I said, yeah, because when, when you guys are reading my poems, you're reading them wrong. So uh. I get the stage directions to tell you how to read it. She says, you belong in the theater, my darling. You belong in the theater. And so I took a playwriting class and I'll never forget the first time I had something read, everybody clapped. I had never had experienced that before. They just clapped and cheered. And I thought, oh, this is my family. This is my church. Mm-hmm. This is another version of my church. So that's how the playwriting began. And then um, did I answer your question? Did you ask about screenwriting too? Or, no, uh, um, we oh. didn't. We didn't hit screenwriting. Yet. Okay, sorry. So you can go with the screenwriting. Okay. So the, <laughs> right. so the screenwriting, you know, it, it's funny because every these these mediums, have grown out of each other. So I, you know, started as the poet and then the playwright came out of the poetry. And then, I mean, the, um, yeah, the playwriting came out of the poetry and then the screenwriting came out of the playwriting. Mm-hmm. So I never forget. I, um, this great thing happened to me where, um, a friend of mine got married and I came out to LA to attend her wedding. And while I was there, I met a producer and the producer said, you know, your friend tells me you're the, a really great writer. Why don't you pitch me a TV show? Um, and so I pitched him some, this, crazy idea at the time, which is about an a, a, um, a HBCU um, that a mother and a daughter was attending at the same time. And he really loved the idea. And he said, you know, you should go pitch this to NBC. Um, would you stay in town longer and we'll go pitch this to NBC? And I thought, oh, this is one of those Hollywood things, right? Mm-hmm. The next morning he called me. He said, I'm outside your hotel. Let's go pitch this to NBC. <laughs> so we took a couple of hours in a coffee shop working on the pitch. And um, this is one of those full circle moments. And I walked into NBC and at the time, one of the top steps was an African-American female who went to Yale. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, and I pitched the shelter and she bought it in the room and which apparently never happens. And um, and it was the biggest check I ever made in my life. And um, and I I've been writing TV since I've, I've just finished my 12th season of television. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shy is the show I have worked on the most. And it's the show that's most dearest to my heart. And um, and then that led into the film career, the screenwriting. Um, the features. Um, and so I think because I had a theater background when they were looking for somebody for the color purple, um, they really wanted somebody that had some theater, you know, because obviously it's a musical. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that's how I ended up getting that job. And then the Marvin Gaye, um, job came out of, I think they really wanted somebody who, um, who was the son of a preacher because so was he. So was he. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that was the draw. Absolutely. I am a big, a huge Marvin Gaye fan, and I have always wanted to bring him, his story to the stage. Yes. You know, um, all of that amazing music and 
his um, the way he grew up, and you can hear the church, especially in his early work, but even Absolutely. in his later work, it was still there, the spiritual and the sexual. That's it right. All That's there. Right. That's right. All there. So I look forward to you bringing uh, that story to film, Thank but you. please think about Think about bringing it to the stage. Look, I'm thinking about it. You got to think about it already. <laughs> we'll have to talk after this. Oh, absolutely. Please think about that. Your vision, your vision yes. of your work. I think you touched upon this earlier, but your vision and, and your purpose. How is that manifested through what you put on the page, and then it comes out on the stage and then on the screen. What are we experiencing um, when we embrace your work? I love this question so much. I think it's so, so it starts with, I look for stories um, that I always say have been buried. Mm -hmm. Stories that we need that somehow for some reason or another are in the earth. Um, the truth, you know, that I always thought was so powerful about the truth is you can bury it, but it will grow. Mm-hmm. It will it will always seed and plant itself, you know, and grow into a tree. And so I look for those trees. I look for those roots uh, of our of our story that um, these stories that we need to show how um, powerful, how resilient, how beautiful, how complicated, um, how deep our, our culture is. And so that's my first thing. Then the second thing, uh, what I try to do is when I'm writing something is, like I said before, listen. So really listening to the spirits, listening to the ancestors, um, listening to my own family, you know, uh, uh, people who have gone before, um, reading. I read everything I can possibly get my hands on. Music. What's so beautiful about music is a time period is encapsulated in a song. So what is the music of that era? And I just sort of like surround myself for weeks sometimes months with that. And then what I'm, what I hope to give the audience is authenticity of the period, mm-hmm. um, authenticity of character. Um, I hope what I, what I, one of my little sort of, I would say my secret recipe is I always say we cry and laugh with the same muscle. So I try to infuse a lot of humor. And so that if there's a moment later where that's emotional, because that muscle is already loosened from laughter, people are more free to cry. Um, I, I want my work to give people a full spectrum of emotions um, and then I also want the work to challenge audiences that I want people to walk away feeling like they're seeing the world in a new way, whether they agree with some of the issues or messaging that the, the story brings forth, whether they agree with it or not. I hope that the material sparks a conversation between people who go see it. Um, and then the mo- I guess the last thing I would say is. I really am excited about expanding the form of theater. I think what's so beautiful about African-American culture is that it is always growing. It is a uh, it is because there's we don't have enough opportunity to tell our stories. There's so many stories to tell. And that um, I think because we are always um, growing and going deeper as artists, as African-American artists, it challenges form. Often it challenges some of these mediums that that we work in. And I love to to challenge form. That's one of the things I'm passionate about as well. Your first collaborators were the ladies, the women in your family in the kitchen. (laughs) Those were your first collaborators. I wanted to ask you about your father and how he 
was absolutely correct about your ministry. Yes. But I'm wondering if we hear your father, the preacher, his cadences, because you well know growing up in the church, if you are a preacher and not a good storyteller, (laughs) you will not have a congregation for you. (laughs) It doesn't matter how good your choir is. If you can't preach, that's right. So how does your dad show up in your work? All the time. You know, this is such a great question as well. Thank you for for this question. The, the cadences in which he speaks is all over the work. Um, mm-hmm. But also my dad has this really incredible ability to uh, lure. They, they call him um, the, the, the comedian preacher because he he's the, the work is very funny at first. You know, his sermons is really funny at first. And then before you know it, you real you don't realize you're like deeply moved by his message, what he's trying to get across. Um, so I definitely borrow that from him. But he also has this really elegant way of repeating things mm-hmm. uh, that 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 helps establish meaning that I use. Um, and my dad would grow up. He grew up. Uh, he would always um, play uh, several preachers on tape. We grew up listening to that. So these different styles of preaching. And so various characters uh, that I write about use these different styles of preaching. Um, but the most important thing I think my dad um gave me as an artist is my dad to this day immensely loves my mother that the love my dad pours on my mom i've I've never seen anything like that in the world and i wish that my place could do that to people because that's how incredible his love is for for my mom wow wow that's amazing to grow up seeing that yes to grow up seeing that not many of us have that that kind of experience no i did not I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Extremely blessed. Now we're going to move into a wolf in snakeskin shoes or the gospel of Tartuffe. Tartuffe, I remember yes. reading Moliere. Yes. What is this play about the title? And how does the source, how did the source material impact you uh, in terms of putting this piece together? And once again, we're in the church. That's right. We're in the church. <laughs> Dead in the church. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I thank you. I, you know, I, it was one of those things too where I really want to explore. Everybody's always asked me, you know, to write about the black church because obviously that was, you know, big impact on my childhood and even today. And so I said, I wanted to come at it in a unique way. I, I definitely wanted to, the church not to come off as a, um, for, so, for some place, for a lot of people, it's, uh, they, they're conflicted about the black church. And I wanted to both celebrate it, but also, you know, have an honest conversation about the church. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was thinking about how to do that. And I I, for some reason, ended up picking up Tartuffe and I had read it several times before. And I thought, oh, this would be a great vehicle because I'm also a little um, curious, I guess is the word, about why, especially in the United States, we keep um, reproducing the same sort of like old, old, super classic plays. And so I thought what this would be an interesting way to have a classic play be in conversation with sort of a modern idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my my impetus for for writing the play. Um, I also studied French while I was in, in, in uh, undergrad. And so I, you know, used to read Meilleur in French and kind of loved that language, his use of language. And I wanted to apply that because, as I mentioned before, I always feel like African-American people 
um, not feel, I believe that African-American people have the most beautiful poetic tongue on the planet. And so I really want to infuse that into this world. Um, those are my big goals uh, working on this play. And so when I started writing it, I was actually in residence at the Tricycle Theater in London. And uh, and they, they decided that they were going to produce the play. Um, and the play is essentially about a... Um, a preacher who uh, who lives in the South, his church is in the South, and he is uh, struggling financially. And so he's looking for a way to keep his church doors open. And for years, he has struggled with sort of doing the, um, what one could argue the stereotypical thing of taking advantage of people. You know, some of the cliches that preachers get, taking advantage of people, taking people's money, you know, buying snakeskin shoes, buying planes, you know, this, this uh, a lot of people have... Um, conflicting ideas about the prosperity movement. And so the, mm-hmm. the play is very much about that. And so um, as in t- while in Tartu, that character is very one-dimensional, one could argue. Uh, and what I want to do is create a, a write about a preacher who's actually really struggling with this idea. Um, and he gets kind of caught up in, he starts making a lot of money and he sort of gets caught up in it. And his wife is trying to essentially save his soul, right? Um, and so the the play is very much about their marriage, but also about a family who he goes to, he heals the father of the family and he sort of um, posits himself in the family unit. And um, he's basically trying to get money from the, the, the patriarch. I don't give too much away, but he's trying to get money from the patriarch and, uh, and the family becomes in conflict with him. And so the play, it's, there's two sort of stories that are in conversation with each other. There's the family unit, Will he take the money from the father? Will the family be able to convince the father that he is a charlatan? But then there's uh, the deeper story, which is his grappling with his soul. Is there a God? Uh, have I been misled? What have I been doing in my life all this time as a preacher? Um, some of these really big questions that I think a lot of people have about both the clergy and the black church. That, that's what the play is grappling with. Um, and I hope people come out to see it. Um, we're not going to just do a standard reading. Um, we're definitely going to do um, put the thing on its feet as much as possible. And, and it's it's a comedy. So it's a good it's a good I think it's a good show for our time. Um, it's not too like a uh, message written, um, but it's fun. There's music. And um, I think people will, will enjoy themselves immensely. When I read it, I found myself laughing out loud a lot. <laughs> A lot. And I was like, yes, I know this. Yes, I've experienced this. Yes, this is hilarious. The language is so rich. Thank you. Uh, the verse yes. is unusual. I said, oh, wait a minute. This is verse. That's right. And then talk about how you decided to to do that. And what kind of actors are you going to have performing this? Because you have to be really skilled right. to right. pull this off without this sounding like it's sing song. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. It's, it's one of those things as a challenge as an actor, you have to activate the language so that it keeps moving. So that isn't, you're right. So that doesn't sound like spoken word, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've, we've cast the, the show primarily with Shakespearean actors um, who are doing an incredible job. Um, but but my choice in using verse really came out of um, I wanted to challenge myself. I had not done that before, mm-hmm. but also um, a lot of the original text is written in verse. And so I wanted to keep that authenticity authenticity uh, in the rewrite. And then I just kind of love the idea of like they're speaking in verse and they know it. 
we're in, we're in the original tart tooth, you know, they just speak verse throughout, but these characters, there's, there's a big theme in the play about, um, manipulating people through charm and language. Yes. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so when he's, when, so when a character is called out for speaking in verse, they stop, but then it sort of sneaks its way back in. And so it becomes a tool for people to seduce each other. I loved it when, uh, uh, the preacher's wife said, don't speak to me. <laughs> you need to speak to me in prose. That's right, in prose, exactly. <laughs> you know, you ever meet those brothers, they so smooth talking, they can get whatever they want. Yeah, they absolutely. Know, speak to me regularly. This ain't going to work for you. <laughs> in developing the piece, you, it's developed over time. Can you take us through some of the iterations of it? Um, and where did you go to uh, develop it? Was it, you said you started when you were in London. Uh, how, what was the next phase for uh, the piece? Thank you. So, so I developed it in London because I was in residence there for about a year. So I developed it there. And then we did a project production of the play there that was very successful. And then my dream has always been for it to um, go to the South, to have a production either at the Alliance or a theater in the South. And so I was going to do it actually at True Colors, Kenny mm-hmm. Leon's Theater. Kenny Leon's Theater, yeah. yes. And unfortunately, the pandemic happened. And so that production didn't happen. So I'm hoping to, um, you know, when theaters um, open their doors to remount it there. Talk a little bit about your relationship with the acting company and the X. The Betty Shabazz piece was absolutely amazing. I remember, and I know he's listening, Kojo Ade <laughs> invited me. I know you're listening, Kojo. I know you're listening. <laughs> invited me to the production and I was absolutely blown away. And even though the acting company had been around for a while, has been around for a while, it was my introduction to the company through your work. Talk a little bit about your relationship with this company and why you're coming back to do this benefit reading with this piece. Yes. Um, thank you. Uh, so I've, I started working with the acting company um, I would say about seven years ago, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Ian Belknap, was running the company then, and we were doing a series of readings. Uh, you know, I was just trying to get my work out there and heard and seen by by people, um, and so we did several readings. And then they, the acting company, does this really incredible uh, project where they'll take a Shakespearean play and tour it around the country, but they they just don't want to do the Shakespearean play. They want to do a contemporary play that's in conversation with the Shakespearean play. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's had this really interesting idea of, I think at the time it was going to be Marcus Garvey, Marcus Garvey and Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. And so obviously my name is Marcus Garvey. And so I, not only just because my name sounds like his, I just, I'm just obsessed with Marcus Garvey as an icon, as a, as a black icon. And so I was really trying to make that work. And the more research I did on Marcus Garvey, I realized this is Malcolm X. The Julius Caesar story is the Malcolm X story. And so, um, I started to, I've always been obsessed with Malcolm X in his life and he's a, a idol of mine. And so I just started to really, really read everything and I couldn't get enough of the play. And so, and I was grappling with, you know, his death, but also I have also coming from the church and seeing my mother really be the foundation of the church. I always felt like Betty Shabazz really never got her due. Uh, and I felt the same way about Coretta Scott King. And so I really wanted to put her at the center of this, at the, of the play. That was my number one goal. And so as I was working on the play, this beautiful thing happened where one of Malcolm X's daughters, 
uh, asked to read the play and read the play and really loved it and became a huge supporter of the project. And it just one of those beautiful things where it felt like everything was coming full circle for me because I was always worried about would he like the play if he was still alive? Would he approve? And his daughter loved the play and became a producer on the show. Um, and so that's how I did that with the acting company and that toured the country in um in concert with Julius Caesar. And then it ended up having a Broadway, off-Broadway run, New York Times critic pick and all of those those things. Um, but it was it's definitely by far one of the greatest um, experiences of my career so far working on that show with them. And, um, and it just kind of sealed a really great relationship with myself and the acting company. And, uh, and what I wanted to do as Ian is finishing his tenure as the artistic director of the company, um, he asked me, would I do another reading, a benefit reading for the company on his way out? And so that's why we, we decided to do this reading here of, um, of, uh, the gospel of Star tooth, you know, wolf and snakeskin shoes. And what's really kind of beautiful is that the cast is composed mainly of actors. We, we, I've been working with that acting company. So it's very much a reunion, uh, a coming, a homecoming for all of us that we're excited to share with the city. Some, I was told that you are also collaborating musically with Broadway inspirational voices. How did that collaboration come about? I love Broadway inspirational <laughs> voices. These people can sing, but come the way on. we say it Thank in the community, you. they sang. They sang. <laughs> they sang. They really sang. So talk about that collaboration and what we're going to to hear because this is original music, correct? That's right. They they. Uh, the, the director, Alan, created actually beautiful original music for the reading, which is such a huge gift. And I, I heard the music uh, last week and it's incredible. Um, so what's so great about I've always wanted to work with Broadway Inspirational Voices. Actually, I was trying to find a way to get them to work on the, the X piece, but the choir, we couldn't make the choir element work. And so, again, this is one of those great, you know, coming together moments where uh, we decided to do the reading of this play and I thought, oh, we need a choir. And we just both knew we wanted broad inspirational voices. So I was literally praying that they would say yes. And they have agreed to come on and, and, and uh, do this reading with us. And the choir in very much, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a chorus in, in the play, not in a traditional way, but they definitely function as sort of like a chorus. But it's also, you know, what I love about seeing African-American work on stages. I always want my place to be interactive. I want people to talk. I want people to laugh. I want people to really engage and the choir will help, uh, uh, you know, present that kind of atmosphere uh, for the audience. So this is one of those plays you really can't do without a choir. Um, Cause of course it's very symbolic of the black church, but also um, for me, Broadway inspirational voices gives us that double gift of being both, um, you know, part of the Broadway community, but also uh I, what I think is one of the best choirs out there. So I can't think of a better choir to work with in the planet. I'm so honored to be working with them. They are absolutely amazing. I was introduced to uh, the choir when I first came to New York uh, many moons ago. And I thought that it was the most amazing thing that all of these Broadway performers came together in song and in praise and in, to inspire people. Inspiration? Absolutely. They absolutely do do that. What will people, what do you want people to experience when they come through the doors of Florence Gould Hall? What do you want them to um, experience? I love this question. I think the most important thing is I want them to get a sense of the African-American church and all its complexities, uh, but also African-American culture, you know, our humor, um, our way with language, 
uh, the way we love on each other, the way we challenge each other. There's also the black family and another way the church is a family, right? But this is really centers around a black family. And so like, uh, I really want people to, you know, engage in the conversation of, you know, the modern black family. What does it look like? What are people grappling with? Um, what are our passions? How do we grow together? Um, what is the modern family? Uh, what are they, what are they, what are they, what are their objectives? Um, and, and I hope that they can see hopefully a reflection of their own lives, people in their own family, maybe even themselves in the work. And I hope that it just raises really profound questions that people can talk about and take with them. I always feel like the last act of any play people take with them, it lives in your body. If the work is really, you know, doing something and, and that's, I hope the gift that I can give, give an audience. What have been some of your favorite experience says moments in shaping and developing this piece. What has made you laugh out loud? What has made you uh, cry? Um, what, how has this piece affected you? Um, and have there been changes because of this pandemic pause? Yes. There, there, I'm actually, doing uh, some even even more minor tweaks as, uh, you know, today, uh, because I wanted to feel very contemporary, but, but there's some, there's a lot of, uh, there's some words and phrasing that in the post pandemic era won't make sense, but also the, some of the things that I'm talking about in regards to misogyny mm-hmm. have changed uh, in regards to immigration have changed. And so all of that I'm tweaking and changing it um, because uh, there's, one, another way, a better way to go about talking about those things that I think mm-hmm. I'm trying to do in the play, but also those things have become more complicated. Um, and so I'm exploring that. Um, I'm sorry, what was the first part of your question? Um, what has made you laugh? That's right. What has made me laugh? You know, this, one of those, what I love about this, so this, the play is a farce. And what I love is that there's physical comedy. There are moments of physical comedy where the actors either find in the spur of the moment or they find in rehearsal that I love. I love those, those surprises that actors give you, the actors give writers and audiences. So those moments make me laugh the most. Um, I also laugh at, you know, in my writing, I hear things a certain way, but another gift the actor would give you is they'll have a different take on it that'll be even better. Mm-hmm. And that makes me laugh. Um, and then there's one moment, and I won't give it away, but there's one moment in the play in which um, one of the characters I love the most named Peaches gives yes. this monologue about African-American women. And it always gets, when I was doing it in London, people would stop the show and stand up and applaud in the middle of the production. And I was always so moved by that. I was always so deeply moved by that moment and that, 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 you know, when we write, we don't know how people are going to respond. And it may be um, that that particular moment is the greatest moment that I've ever made in the theater. And um, I always wait for it because it never fails. Um, and uh, so, yeah, thank you. That, that would be it. Who gets the honor of playing Peaches? Because when I read that, I was just like, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to hear this. Oh, that's a great question. So it's going to be played by Adrian Moore, who uh, <gasps> Orange is New Black. Yes. Love Adrian. Yeah. Love she's gonna, her. She's going to kill it. She's going to kill it. Yes, she's going <laughs> to kill it. Kill it. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> who are some of the other people who are involved with this? Uh, so we have a great cast. Uh, C. Kelly Wright is, is playing Maxine. Uh, and, and I've worked with her. She's from the Bay Area and we've worked uh, together a long time. Um, J.D. Mullison uh, is playing the lead. Uh, a great actor that I work with all the time. One of my favorite actors. Jamon Cole, who was also played Malcolm X. Also, one of my favorite actors is is in the play playing Argan Argandi. Um, and then there's some w- one of the beautiful things about this particular reading is uh, there are actors that I have not worked with, but that are from a younger generation. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to have, you know, we wanted to have that uh, older generation, younger generation uh, in, in the cast, uh, which I'm very excited about. Um Denise Burst, who is one of my favorite actresses, who I adore. Uh, and I haven't been able to work with her in a while, so I'm glad to have her back. And she, I think she is a comedic genius. Um, and so I'm excited to work with her. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to work with Ian, the director. Uh, we do a lot of stuff together and, um, I'm glad to have him back in the company. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an all-star cast. I was just telling Ian, um, there's also this actress, uh, Destiny, who I work with a lot too, who is a big fan of, I'm a big fan of her, but I was telling Ian when I was. Is it Destiny Rare? No, Destiny. Um, her name is, last name escapes me. She's going to kill me because I forgot her last name. Okay. But unless she, she changed it. I don't, it wasn't Rare the last time. I, I, but um, she's incredible. Oh, and, and Chelsea uh, is also playing First Lady, who's an actress who was in um, X. Uh, super, super talented. She's also in a Broadway show. Um, uh, the country, the girl uh, from North Country, girl from North Country. Yes, mm-hmm. she, you know, she's in that, and she's an incredible, beautiful singing voice, incredible actor. Um, but I, when I was looking at the casting list earlier today, I remember remarking that it's perfect. That literally, we've been blessed enough to have the perfect people in the perfect parts. I couldn't ask for a better cast, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to share this with New York because it's it's going to be great. Well. I will definitely be in the house. <laughs> I definitely want to come see this. One other thing that with your move into uh, film, I see directors, um, some directors like Liesl Tommy, you know, like who just did this, the big uh, respect. Yes. Um, and I saw all of these theater actors <laughs> In the film, I said, oh, I've worked with that person. I've worked with that person. And there's Seikon, who is blown up, you know, in terms of having one of the um, biggest comedies on network television uh, this season, Seikon Sanglo. Are you creating that kind of space for for artists to go with you as you go on your journey as well? Absolutely. Thank you for this question. You know what? It's my number one passion. So I'm actually developing this TV show right now, and I'm going to cast pretty much 90% theater actors. It's not just because it's the family that I come from and the community that I come from. It's the theater, there's the skill set that the theater actors bring to it. It's like no other. You know, the ability to, you know, do their own dramaturgy, the the ability to um, really ask the tough questions, the really important questions that's needed on set. All of that, the theater actor brings to the fore. And um, I, I'm like you. When I saw Aretha, uh, a respect, I got super excited by seeing some of my friends in it as well. And and I marvel at how brilliant the acting is. I marvel at how they are able to, you know, because acting on film and the camera takes requires a different skill set. Yes. But you see that all of that complexity and all of that talent just transformed into another medium. And so, you know, I not only am excited and passionate about bringing theater actors. Uh, to both film and TV and casting them in it. I'm 
even more excited about and more passionate about African-American females of a certain age. We need to be casting them in these films and TVs. And that's my number one goal. So you will be seeing them in my work. That's for sure. Oh, good, good, good. (laughs) Thank you very much. Because I often say once we lose our, and please don't anyone be offended uh, by this, but once women seem to lose, we lose our ornamental value um, that people no longer think that we are interesting. Right. And it is with that seasoning. Thank you. (laughs) That seasoning. A friend of mine calls them, calls us seasoned divas. Yes. (laughs) That makes us interesting. Thank you. And I absolutely love the fact that more people are writing for us. And when you mentioned Denise. Yes. Wow. Yes. She's absolutely amazing. She sure is. Absolutely amazing. So do you have any final thoughts for us about A Wolf in Snakeskin Shoes or the Gospel of Tartuffe? And what's next for you? Yes, my thank you. My my final thoughts would be one is that I hope people are excited and energized to come see the reading. Um and and it's it's the kind of show where I, I want people to sing along, clap along, have fun. This is a show that I think people will be delighted at how funny, how entertaining, but also in a lot of ways deeply moving the show is. And so I hope people keep us come with a spirit of fun and wanting to involve themselves in the work. Um and then I think what's next for me is, you know, I've I've been writing a lot about, um, like I said, Marvin, Marvin Gaye. And, and one of my number one passions is is really, you know, exploring stories uh, uh, about black icons. And, and my number one idol has always been James Baldwin. And so um, I got fortunate enough, blessed enough to um, get a job writing. A, a, it'll be the first James Baldwin movie um, uh, and, uh, and produced by Janelle Monet. And so that's what I'm spending my days doing, really sort of reading everything he wrote, reading all the books about him. And um, it's it's changing my life. He really, in a lot of ways, is um, not only my favorite writer, but sort of my North Star. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm excited to to share that with the world. I'm super excited about that. And then the last thing I would say, I'd be remiss if I didn't do that, is that, Marcia, I really just want to thank you, Kojo, as well, for championing our work. Um, when I first got involved in theater, you were there. You have always been a lighthouse and a pillar in our community. And I know I speak for, you know, several generations of playwrights, actors, directors, theater practitioners, theater goers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for always being there for us, for always supporting our work. I remember I, I was doing a reading and it was you couldn't get in there. And then there was like Marcy. I was like, she always comes through for me. And so thank you so much for always being there and being our champion. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you so very much.